Thank you for joining us today for the ministry of the word at Foundation Church. We pray that what you hear today will be as much of a blessing for you as it was for the people of our congregation. Greetings this Lord's Day in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, Today's call to worship comes from Psalm 119. Kyle picked this out for us. So, give me one second. So hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 119, verses 105 through 130. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my freewill offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. Uphold me according to your promise that I may live, and let let me not be put to shame in my hope. Hold me up that I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continually. You spurn all who go astray from your statutes, for their cunning is in vain. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. I have done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Give your servant a pledge of good. Let not the insolent oppress me. My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. It is time for the Lord to act, for your law has been broken. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right, and I hate every false way. Your testimonies are wonderful. Therefore, my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. The word of the Lord. All right, let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, thank you for being with us as we come to worship you today. We pray it is acceptable and a pleasing aroma for you. Hear our confession. Accept our prayer. And shine your face upon us today that we may know you a little bit more and be a little bit more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I appreciate Tim stepping to the plate and doing uh, liturgy. He asked me if I was going to do it last night, and I was not prepared to do it. Um, 
but maybe the next time I come, I will engage in that element of the process. So um, let us bow our heads in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for this day, for this for the word of God. I thank you for the liturgy you give us each and every Sunday that we sing the word of God. We speak the word of God. We hear the word of God. We sing it. And we see it in the drama of communion. We thank you for the rhythm of liturgy that you give us each and every week that reminds us and ties us and binds us back to home base. That our tether is never cut and that it is constantly reminded of who we are, who you've made us to be and who you are. I pray today, Lord, as we meditate on the words that come from your scriptures, that they would find their place in our heart and remind us throughout the week and literally haunt us through our life that we cannot put it out, but it is a constant reminder of who you are and what we are called to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I, uh, I've had an interesting week. We lost power Thursday night, about 9.30 at night. Uh, we were actually watching an action movie. And literally the guy puts the old explosive on the door trick, you know. And it, right when the bomb goes off in the movie, boom, the lights went out. <laughs> and a transformer had blown a couple blocks away. It was... We both went, me and my wife, wow. Uh, well, we didn't make it back till 2 in the morning. Our phones were dying, so we went to a hotel lobby, asked them if we could sit there and charge our phones. Connection in the lobby was terrible, probably because we were in a big steel building. Uh, but they were nice and kind to us and gave us food. I mean, uh, uh, you know, I, I was going to buy a drink from them. They gave it to us for free. And, and you're like, so, so what's the point of that, Kyle? So... I didn't get back till two in the morning because Entergy just never sends out messages when they say the power's back on. They just keep saying, no, it'll be on by two, by two. Uh, I got a message at seven in the morning that we got good news, the power's back on. Well, it was on probably around 12 or one and we're still sitting in the lobby half passed out because we're tired. And then <clears throat> I'm recuperating, getting my rest, kind of getting caught up, you know, and uh, my flight is delayed. And I got in at, I think it was 3.30, Jonathan's when we finally got home, something like that. So I didn't get to sleep till four o'clock Saturday morning. Now my rhythm and routine here is to um, prepare my heart during the week, meditate. This is kind of common practice. Look at the scriptures, you're pondering, you're putting things together. Friday or Saturday is kind of crunch time where you're putting it all on paper, roughing up your draft and then fine tuning it. Well, that that all got blown up because of the power going out and late flights. So I uh, so I went to work yesterday. Uh, now, I tell you that story just to say, you know why I did that? Because it's just who I am. And you're like, oh, that's just so Kyle. <laughs> He's one of those preacher guys that loves to do that stuff and, you know, better him than me because I could never do that. Well, once upon a time, I couldn't do it very well either. I still don't know that I can do it well. But, you know, the more you do a trade, the better you get at it. And so I've, I've come accustomed to do it. Now, don't think that it isn't work. 
It is work. You know, Jesus says to the Pharisee, well, then why does God make the Pharisees work on the Sabbath? Because serving God is work. But why do I do it? Because it's so fun and easy when you're half tired to dig through all this information, put it on a piece of paper, ask anybody who's ever preached a message, how's your introduction going? And it's usually, well, uh, scratch that. Take two, and sometimes it's worse than that. Things like that. I simply am rehearsing this moment, taking advantage of this moment to say, we do what we do in Christ because we are in Christ and it's who we are. If I wasn't in Christ, I might have spent all yesterday working on my golf game, which I might have done anyways if I wasn't preaching. But you understand what I'm saying? Why do we go through the stuff of life the way we do it as Christians, as believers? Why does that thing keep nagging us that pulls us back to church? Why are we still coming 15 years later? Why is that thing still pulling us back? Why is that anchor still there we just can't get rid of? Because it's who we are. And try as you might. You just can't change who you are. Now, today's sermon, catchy title, right? I like catchy titles. To be or not to be. Somebody famous once said that. Actually, he didn't. There was a character in one of his plays. The guy's name is Shakespeare. He says, to be or not to be, that is the question. Now, I am turning the entendre, the understanding of that, because what he meant is, should I live or should I be dead? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is to be who you are or not to be who you are. That is the question I pose today. See the little lighthouse? Pretty neat, huh? I like it. We were, we were struggling over, should I put a lighthouse up there or a city? Because you can go online and find cities on hills all lit up. It's really neat. Because our text, our, the core, the main core of our text is Matthew 13 to 16. Now I have brought a lot of text today and depending on the fly how much time we have to fit it all in and this happens by the way with every preacher every sermon is front loaded with most of your material and if you notice they all rush to finish the back half of the sermon I couldn't quite fit all this in so I just got a bullet pointed out maybe we'll get to it next week all right so we'll see how much I can get done here today Honestly, if I had three weeks, that's how this whole sermon would go. But I'm going to kind of put it in here, see what we can do. Because Matthew 5 through Matthew 7 is that famous Sermon on the Mount. And I spent probably three months in Sunday school teaching through this Sermon on the Mount. And I'm going to give you the front half of this sermon in 45 minutes to an hour. And if I do it an hour, it's because I'm really stretching your attention span. So bear with me as I try to drill it all down to what really counts. And I believe this is the core of what I want to be on today. Just prior to this text is something real famous called the Beatitudes. You ever heard of that? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Those are the Beatitudes. I like to say it that way because it kind of stresses the point. The Beatitudes. 
And after that is where Christ says, I've come to fulfill the law. And then he starts going through all these things about how we should treat divorce, how these Pharisees tell you we should treat it, and then how the scripture actually tells you how to treat divorce, marriage, lust, um, loving your enemies, um, keeping oaths. But I'm, I'm trying to keep us right in the center here. This is almost like an indicative sandwich. Does anybody remember what the indicative is? I'm going to rehearse it again because I know if you're not used to this, you forget what it is. So here's the indicative. The indicative indicates what something is. Uh, that's a tennis ball. The indicative of the tennis ball, it is round, slightly furry, rubbery, and uh, it bounces. That's the indicative of what it is. That's not what it does. What it does is it, get, it gets hit around. And the why it is, is so that people can play tennis. But the what it is, is it's a round ball, rubbery, with felt kind of furry fur on it. That's the what it is. And the scripture is always telling us, and Paul's way of writing scripture is to tell us who you are, what it is, and then we get to the imperative. That's the what to do with what you are. What's the imperative of a tennis ball? Hit it. That's the imperative. That's what you must do with a tennis ball if you're going to play tennis. So there's the what it is, the who you are. Now, the last time I was here, I preached in Romans. And what was the big deal? What was the big imperative? To consider. The big imperative was to consider who you are. The big imperative was remind yourself about your own indicative, who you are. Okay? So today, I want us to sit again on another indicative because it is the fuel to the imperative. The imperative is the must do. If you don't know who you are, you don't know what you must do. And so you have to be reminded and be made aware like little children. Little children, you have to say, you're a boy. You're a girl. This is your left foot. This is your right foot. What makes it a left foot? Oh, it looks this way on this side. What's the right? It looks this way on this side. Those are the indicatives so that they know what to do with them. Now, once these boys and girls get the pituitary gland going, they'll know what to do. So our job is to guide them and teach them how to do it well. So let's see if we can't get this party started. 13 through 16, Matthew 5, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Anybody hear the indicative in there? Who are you? Oh, you're the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world, verse 14. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus tells us two things about ourselves, who we are 
and why. The why in life is everything. You know, scientists really pride themselves on learning. There's a tragedy occurring in the third row. Scientists pride themselves on what they know, but what they can't always figure out is why it is. And they try to stay away from that the closer they get to the truth. But Jesus is not hiding the why. He says, we are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, then the saltiness, how shall it be restored? And the light of the world, what is the point? What is the why of being the light? So that you can be on a hill and be seen. Now, secretly, what I'm really getting to today is evangelism. That's a secret. Don't tell anybody because we're not there yet. But it's the scariest word to most Christians is evangelism. Well, how do I do evangelism? I see I have to study 10 hours in apologetics and know all my facts and figures. Then I can have qualifying arguments. Then I can talk to people about Jesus. But until I do that, I'm terrified to talk to people about Jesus. Oh, I know what evangelism is. It's going door to door, knocking on people's houses, bugging them when they're in the middle of the game. They're in the ninth inning. There's two outs. It's a 3-2 count. They're about, and some guy knocks on your door and wants to tell you about Jesus. <laughs> Who, who's interested in door knocking? Just curious. Who thinks you should do it, but you're not interested in it? There you go. You don't have to all raise your hands at once. <clears throat> Because that's not how our culture is constructed now. But you know what's nice about Scripture? It's, it's um, not dependent on the particular cultural time you live in. It's transcendent. And if you know anything about this text, and you're hopefully going to know more about it by the time I'm done today, this is about evangelism. This is the secret. Like if I could give you the secret keys to the kingdom of evangelism, this would be it today. So let's get started. Before this text, Jesus goes through the Beatitudes. This is where I have to kind of go fast. Because honestly, you could preach a message on every single Beatitude. You could spend weeks just going through the Beatitudes. So I'm going to do it real quick. Seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, one thing that's important. Jesus starts this message on a mountain. He's painting a picture. God has dramas and he shows us what things look like. And so the whole setting is he's up on a hill. Light, you're put on a hill to be broadcast. Well, he, he takes that position and he opened his mouth and taught them. Now, what I think is funny, he says, and he opened his mouth. Understand Jesus is now speaking with authority. It's a big deal that he opened his mouth. They make a big point to say the master started talking and teaching. So he's basically saying, so listen up. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor here means, uh, well, it says blessed are the poor. It means blessed and happy, be in a state of blessedness. The poor in spirit. So Jesus is saying, this is who the people in the kingdom of God are. They are these people. He's not saying, you need to be these people. You need to work real hard to get to be these people. He says, this is who they are. Okay, keep that in mind. We're just circling the indicatives here. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what does poor in spirit mean here? It means that they, they know their need for a savior. They are poor in the heavenly riches of righteousness. They need forgiveness and redemption. And they're not self-righteous and snobs. See, the problem with Israel is they know that God has left the temple and God is not in Israel. And they're waiting for Messiah and deliverance. So they think because they were all idolaters before and that's how the kingdom was taken away. If they live righteous lives now, God will come back to his people. If they show enough repentance and enough righteousness. Because the, the kingdom of Israel blew their calling. Their calling was to be a city on a hill. Their calling was to be a light unto the world. But they became a bunch of stinking idolaters. And they ruined it. So Jesus is now reorienting these people to say, no, listen, you're not the mighty nation of Israel here to conquer and have riches. Let me tell you who you are. Because this is going to help you in the future so that the kingdom, as it comes, you can partake. The Pharisees were a bunch of self-righteous snobs. But Jesus says, no, 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 you have to know your need. And the kingdom of heaven, the people who really know Christ, are be, they know Christ, and one of the indicatives of that is they know their need for him. They're poor. They need Christ. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the, world, the earth. So in the faith, uh, well, I'm sorry, I skipped one. Blessed are those who mourn, for they, shall not be for they shall be comforted. These are the people who mourn over their sin, and they mourn over the fallen sin of this world, and the corruption, and they long for redemption in the kingdom. So all you have to do is watch the news. All you have to know is this is a sin-sick world. I, 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 do, do we hate sin? Do we hate what it does? Are we tired of it? If that's who you are, it's probably because you're in the kingdom. It's probably because you're one of his. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is kind of where I've found myself a lot in the day we live in. In the face of such a fallen, sinful world and its evil corruption, fueled by a humble awareness of their own lack of ability to fix it, that would be us, in our own strength and machinations, we humbly and patiently wait on the Lord to make all things new. Now, we may be engaged in the public square, but our confidence is in the Lord and in him alone. I have come to the point in politics of the United States of America today, there's not a whole lot I can do about it. I live in a sin-sick world. Corruption is everywhere. And I'm just one little guy. God hasn't called me to that ministry and so in the meantime, I, I, I have a voice in the public square. I have a vote. When I have opportunity to help, I do. It's the godly thing to do. But my hope is not in politics. Anybody who lived through the 80s and the culture war of the 80s knows that politics has failed you. It's only gotten worse. And there's a reason why. If politics could do it, we wouldn't need this scripture. If all we could, had to do is elect the right guy, then that would fix it. But why don't we elect the right guy? 
It's the people's president. What's wrong with the people? Didn't they? I mean, I don't know if you like the guy in office or the last guy or the guy before that, but they're not pure as the wind-driven snow. But they are who we elected and who our culture produced. Therein lies the problem. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Are you hungry for righteousness? You're probably one of God's people in his kingdom. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. They've received mercy, so they desire to give mercy. And by giving mercy, they're receiving mercy. James 2.13, for judgment is without is without mercy to, know, to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The pure in heart, Hebrews 10, 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts clean, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Indicative, indicative, indicative. Kind of cruising through them, because I think we get the idea. That brings us to verse 13. So you are the salt of the earth, Jesus says. Now, just before he makes this transition, he's saying, blessed are those, blessed are those. It's all plural and impersonal. But as we get to the last section, he says, blessed are you, when others revile, he, he dials it down to the crowd right in front of him and says, this is who you are in the kingdom. And then he says, you are salt and light. Salt is used for two things, to preserve and to season. We, now this is it, this is evangelism 101. We as believers exist to preserve this world from corruption and decay. It's the first thing we do, we preserve. We're here to preserve the earth, believe it or not. Just as salt has historically kept meat from rotting, souring and decaying, so the believer, the church, is a preservation in this world against the stench of moral decay and rot. Did I say stench and rot good enough? That's the point. You know, prior to refrigeration, you didn't keep meat without salting it. But once you dried the meat out and salted it, you could keep it for a long time. It's called beef jerky. Yeah. You can say, it'll sit on the shelf for months and you can eat it. Because it has a preservative in it. Left to themselves, mankind rots and decays and sours in its wickedness to its own destruction. Genesis 6, 11, 12. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Now we read this uh, about, well, then the Lord said to Abraham, this is very interesting, Abraham is, is going to, uh, is, is promised his land, but God says, but you're not going to get it right now. It's going to come in 400 years from now. Then the Lord said to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. That is when they go to Egypt and they become slaves and servants in Egypt. 
and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they, that is the, the nation of Israel, shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. I always found that to be an amazing text. Abraham, this is going to be your land, and we're going to take it from the Amorites. But it wouldn't be right for us to take it right now. It's their land. They have not rotted and decayed enough to justify cutting off the gangrene material called the Amorites. We've got to let it fester some more. Now that sounds cold, but really that's what God is saying. Hey, listen, it wouldn't be just of me right now to take the Amorites' land from them. Because they have not, the, their sin, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. They haven't rotted enough. You know, if you get a, an infection in your leg and you get gangrene, they're going to try and keep it going. They're going to they're try and rescue your leg. But at a certain point, when it rots enough, they're going to cut it off, lest it kills everything else around it. Christ says we are salt. We are preservatives. Now, prior to the flood, there was the godly line of Seth. All right? Everybody understands that? There was Seth and his descendants, and there was Cain, the wicked line of Cain and his descendants. The godly line of Seth is a preservative in the earth. Move the ball forward uh, 1,100, 1,200 years to the flood. The godly line of Seth has dissipated. It's lost its saltiness. You know what God says? Well, it's time to wipe it all out and start again. The godly line of Seth was reduced all the way down to just Noah and his family. How about the righteous lot in Sodom? That's what we had today for the reading. God says, he says, well, should we tell Abraham that we're going to wipe out Sodom? Yeah, and then Abraham says, well, Lord, what if there's 50 righteous people there? What if there's salt? What if there's preservative? And God says, well, if there's preservative there, then I won't wipe it out. And he creeps the number down and down. He gets to 10. He says, hey, if there's 10, I won't. Well, they get to Sodom, and there ain't even 10. There's Lot and his wife and his daughters. That's it. The salt was not sufficient to roll back the tide of the rot. And so God destroyed Sodom. I think I'm demonstrating for you how valuable the church and the righteous are in society. Living out our Christian values preserves. When we fail to live out loud, it opens the culture around us to decay, darkness, and eventual destruction. Rome was a great kingdom, a wicked kingdom. And then the church invaded Rome just by being the church. And, you know, the church affected Rome. It changed as a culture how Rome treated sexuality, how they treated women, not as property, how they treated slaves, how they treated the family, how they valued human life in the image of God. When Christians just living their lives says, oh, you don't want that baby? We'll take it because they were busy loving and appreciating the image of God. You know, that affected Rome. That affected the culture. Don't you think Roman women are saying, boy, 
The women in their community are treated a lot better than the women in our community. We like that community. You see, they get jealous. God creates a natural jealousy. You may not like their religion, but you sure like how their family life is. That, that's evangelism 101. You can't evangelize a culture that isn't there because they've been wiped out. And the more light and salt that is in a culture, the more you are able to communicate. If you don't believe me, go to areas of the world where the gospel has never touched and you'll see animism, barbarism, heathenism at a high level. <clears throat> so the first thing is we just be, just be salt, just be. Just go plant yourself in a community and be. That's not complicated, right? You didn't have to go to the apologetics class for that, right? We didn't have to knock on anybody's door. We didn't have to bother anybody. Just be. Just go to the store and be. Go to the store. Hi, Bob. Hi. Hi. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, church was great yesterday. Church? What's church? I don't, I don't go to church. Well, I go to church. Hey, it was nice to see you, Bob. The next week you come back. Hey, Bob. Oh, church was fantastic last week. He doesn't know anything about church. I mean, you might as well be talking about golf. That's okay. Let me tell you, I, I've been kind of excited about golf lately. It's just been a fun little hobby. And I tell people about it. I tell them how exciting and fun it is to learn about it. Now, am I telling them because I want them to all be golfers? Nope. Of course, now, if they understand how fun it is to swing a golf club, that's fun, too, because I'll have somebody to swing a golf club with. Well, don't you think your life should be like that in Christ? Are you excited about Christ? Is Christ important to you? He's important to me. When I'm bouncing around in culture, I don't just hide Christ because I don't think you like him. I talk about him because, dang, he's so fun. He's great. He saved my life. He made my life different. I used to be a really bad person. And then Christ saved my life. That's amazing. I mean, if, if you married the woman of your dreams, do you kind of like, I don't want to talk about her because I don't think you really like her. Uh, you might not think she's pretty, but <laughs> I do. So I talk about my wife. She's wonderful. She's beautiful. I love her. Hey, you want to meet my wife? This is my wife. Just be. Just be Saul. Just be you. Just be a Christian. Don't hide it. Don't pretend like because nobody else likes it, you shouldn't like it. I'm not stopping you from liking target practice. So you talk about target practice. And because I'm a nice guy and I want to be a good neighbor, I like to hear your story about target practice. I'm not all into guns and everything. My brother-in-law has about every weapon you can name. So when he comes over, it's a lot of fun. He's got literally 15 weapons. And he knows how to teach weapons and all that. So he talks about weapons all the time. He talks about tactics and military and police tactics. And I humor him. This is all it is. This is evangelism 101. Is it hard yet? Is it complicated? Did you have to go to class? It's easy. What happened to Rome? Well, they kind of lost their saltiness, right? The, the Christian church became a big monolith, big Roman Catholic church, and we went into what's called the what? Dark Ages. Now, we all know that there was plenty of intellectual light in the Dark Ages. But the Dark Ages, from our perspective, means the light of the gospel was less until the Protestant Reformation, which is a recovery of the gospel. We'll get to that a little further down the line. But you see the point? The saltiness loses its saltiness. And where's Rome? 
In fact, all the kingdoms on the earth died because they're not built on the gospel. Eventually, they all die. What happened to Germany? Wasn't that a center for the Protestant gospel? And, and what did they devolve to in World War II? Ooh, bad news. I guess the saltiness got lost there. In fact, what's happening right now in Western civilization? Is Western civilization falling apart and devolving? Has the church lost its saltiness in the Western civilization? Does the world get confused about gender because we're confused about gender? I think so. I think we're, not, I think we're confused about God's hierarchy. So the world's confused about hierarchy. They think it's all about power. We think it's all about glory. They think it's about oppression. We think it's about freedom. Hierarchy brings freedom and glory and healing. They think it brings oppression. You know why? Because in their system, it really does. Might makes right. Because we're not, we're not communicating well. We're not being. See how important being is? Being is doing. If you're happily married, you're not going to pretend you're not. You, you just can't wipe that smile off your face. This is evangelism 101. It's the best kept secret in evangelism classes. Light. We're salt and we're light. Now, this has always been the, the anchor part of this text for me. By the way, uh, before I skip past salt, the other thing salt does is it brings flavor. A little flavor. You know what I mean? A little flavor. Life is not, life is not terrible. Oh, that left a terrible taste in my mouth. Because of the gospel, life is flavorful. Because of the gospel, there's beauty. Because of the gospel, there's richness. You, 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 you know when food needs some salt. <laughs> and you put a little salt on it and everything is okay. Because that's what Christ does. This world doesn't even know how bad off they are until they don't have it. I'm telling you, this world will be sad to see Western civilization collapse. So light, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. A city, a holy city, a community, a church, the people of God. God didn't save you to be an individual in his kingdom. He saved you and put you in a church so that you could be part of a community that supports one another, that learns from each other how to submit to the Lord and how to grow in Christ. He didn't put you in a prison and he didn't put you into a work camp that says you must come to church. He put you in an opportunity. He put you in a family. Now, I, I, I wasn't born yesterday. I was born at night, but it wasn't last night. Families are not always fun. But last I remember, I'm still part of a family whether I like it or not. And so God says, get along, learn, grow with the family. There's a purpose to it. It's set on a hill. The church is set right in the middle of the darkness. Why this church is set right in the middle of Mount Sterling. 
You think that's by accident? You think it's better than being off in a corner somewhere? Don't you think it's better that the owner of this building knows that you've been beautifying his property? Don't you think that's good? I think it gives glory to our God in heaven. That responsible, nice people are here taking care of his property for free. Just so they can come and meet together. That's pretty amazing. Maybe the Lord will make it more than that. But all I'm saying is, your light set right in the middle of Mount Sterling. Now, remember that promised land I told you about with, with Abraham? God gave Abraham a promised land. And I've recited this before when I preached through uh, Genesis, I think it was 10, about God moving the nations. Where do you think God put Abraham's future home? He put it right in the middle of the hood. He put it right in the middle of New York City where all the strip joints are and the, and the bad people are. He put it right in Canaan. Do you know what Canaan is? Canaan is a cursed group, a cursed tribe. They're the sons of Ham. Ham was not the cursed one. Canaan was, the scripture says. And so you know who the Amorites are? They're descendants of Canaanites. They're wicked people. They burn their children and sacrifice them to, to the god Molech. They're really bad people. And God said, well, Abraham, I'm going to put you right there in the middle of downtown New York. Now, if anybody remembers downtown New York from the 70s, it was, it was horrible. Heroin everywhere, murder, crime. Now, they cleaned up New York City a lot through the 80s and 90s. You know, the whole Giuliani thing. But I want you to know that God says to Abraham, hey, right there, right there in the Bronx, that's your new home. <laughs> Why? Because the kingdom of God has been meant to be put in the darkness so it can light it up and beautify it and make it pretty. There's nothing better than making something pretty in construction. As much as I hate some of the aspects of construction because it's hard work, it is pleasing when you're done to say, looks pretty. Um, the older I get, the less pleasing it is because my body's tired. But that's the point. Saltiness that I spoke of earlier is a catalyst for light. It's almost like, uh, like uh, you know, you put two wires in salt water so that you can produce light, you know. The salt is a conduit. Now, people don't put a light or a lamp under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. This is the metaphor Christ uses. Lamps are made to illuminate the darkness and light up a house. What happens when you put a light on is all the critters run. That's the first thing that happens. All the little bugs and stuff go, oh, holy smokes, party's over, light's on. All the rats run for cover. Next thing that happens is people don't stumble on all the debris and the unseen hazards. There's nothing worse than walking into a room and hitting your shin on something and you can't see where anything is. And the work of decorating and beautifying a house can be accomplished. So Jesus says, just be salt, just be salt, and then shine. Like, like I said, you go to the store, don't hide that you're a Christian. I'm not telling you to be obnoxious. 
I'm not telling you to go to every, you know, Bob and Mary that you see and say, by the way, can I tell you about Jesus? There's something very unorganic and unnatural about that. But there's something very natural about, Bob, we need to buy new chairs for our church this week, and you're a chair salesman. Oh, really? What you doing? New church? Oh, yeah, blah, 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 blah. Just rubbing shoulders with the people in this world and being salt and light. It does something called opening up a conversation. And anybody who knows me who's heard me say this, I like real conversations with real people. That's the heart of evangelism. Just have a real conversation with real people. Now, don't worry. You can't get as real as you'd like to with most people. They'll let you know how real you can be. And with every little moment of realness they let you have, you just walk right into it because that's the Holy Spirit moving. You want to be led by the Spirit? You want to get all ethereal about being led by? That's what it means to be led by the Spirit. Open door, walk in. Ain't open, just be polite and say, no problem, I understand, I love you. I just went and visited with my sister in uh, Thanksgiving. And she's from the top three people age-wise in my family. I'm from the lower caste, so they were all out of the house. I, I was too little to know what their world was like in the family dynamic. And my dynamic was very different. So I asked my sister a lot of questions. I wanted to learn about my family dynamics and how things were, how we ended up here, starting here, and got to here, which was kind of a mess. Well, it got very emotional for her, and I knew I couldn't probe too hard, so I said, it's okay, I understand. And I do understand. It was hard for her emotionally. That's all evangelism is with anybody. You, people will let you tell them about Jesus when they know you care about them when they know you legitimately care about them, that they're not a target on your evangelism chart, and that you're not doing it because you know you have to. People will let you tell them things. They will let you speak into their lives. And let me tell you about men. Men like straight talk. Men like to take sides, and they like to be decisive. Even, even in our age when men are not exercised in this faculty, when, when challenged, men like challenges. And that's why men don't get juiced about church a lot. Because they, they, they're looking for real conversations about real things. And they just want real people. They just want to keep it real. Lamps are made to illuminate... And in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So as of this point right now, you've heard the bulk, the core, the heart of what I have to say today. Every time I hear people teach about evangelism, I say, just talk to people. And they go, well, you're really good at that, Kyle. Maybe I am. Let's say I am. You know, I used to be shy when I was a little boy. When my mother brought me to kindergarten, I cried and cried and kicked and screamed. Ah! Ah! And, and, and I was always shy growing up because the home I grew up in was not so nice. So I was always ashamed to have people come and visit my home and to see my home life. And so I didn't grow up as a confident young man. I did grow up as a debaucherous little party animal, but not a confident man. 
Um, now I am outgoing and I talk to people. Um, I don't think I'm that crazy, but maybe I'm crazy, I don't know. But I can tell you this, anybody, um, Steve over there doing the sound, he just ha he has a new young wife and she's pretty and he thinks she's pretty and he lost a lot of weight. Everybody knows it, Steve, so I'm not sharing anything. Not that he was huge or anything, but what I'm saying is he got, he got all trimming. He got excited about his wife. And you could see it. There was no hiding that. Now, Steve might not be the most outgoing, talkative person. It may be his. I'm not saying one way or the other. But I'll bet you he couldn't hide that conversation. You see? This has got nothing to do with whether you're an outgoing person or not. What you're excited about in life shows, and people see it. And when they see you're excited, they get curious about that. It might only be for a moment, but they're curious. Do you know that if your life is about Christ, you will learn as you walk with him to take advantage of what Christ has done in your life and the curiosity he's made you to others. And out of love for your neighbor, you will share this new gift. Steve is sharing his new gift. Look, look where his wife is sitting. Is she sitting over here in the seats? No, because they're in love. Right? Did someone make her sit there? Is that the rule? You are now married and newlyweds. You must sit in the booth with your husband. Oh, no, you just, you, hey, this is what life does. It just makes this stuff happen. And there ain't nothing wrong with that. This is the point. Life and light bring energy and joy and glory to the maker of heaven and earth. And God says, I want my glory spread out. I want everybody to know what a rose garden looks like. Now, not everybody in this room is excited about the same thing. Everybody here has different hobbies. Don't ask me to do arts and crafts or to grow plants. It'll be scribbles and dead plants. Okay? God's not going to have me rub shoulders with crafts people. And plant people. He's just not. I'm going to rub shoulders with contractors. I'm going to rub shoulders with athletes sometimes because I love sports. You see? And I'm going to rub shoulders with people who like to talk about quantum physics. I'm really into quantum physics these days. And, and you know what? Because I'm into quantum physics for all the right reasons, sometimes you can't get me to stop talking about quantum. My, my wife is like, okay, honey, that's enough quantum physics. My poor wife has to live with it. And everything that you're into is for purpose. For two things. Because you like it and it makes you happy. And God is happy with that. Jesus is happy to make you happy. He's not a jerk. He likes making us happy. But it's also to glorify the Lord. How's evangelism going? Is it hard or easy? I mean, is it complicated? Did you have to go to school for that? Nobody's saying nothing. Is it hard or is it easy? <laughs> I just want one person to say it's easy. <laughs> no, thank you. You have satisfied this needy preacher. <clears throat> See, I know it's easy, and I know you know it's easy. It's just fun to engage with you. And you think it's fun because I'm seeing a lot of smiles. 1 Peter 2, 11 to 13. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, be salt, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they speak, 
they, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So real quick, we're going to wind out of this because what, what Jesus then does, the next text right after this, verse 17, he says, now do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill. I have not come to take the rules away. I have not come to say that we don't have to do right and obey God and his commands. Heaven and earth is going to pass away before that happens, guys. We need the structure. We need righteousness. He says, I've come to fulfill it. So keep your eye on me. Imitate me. Watch what I do and then do the same. Now, you're going to like it. It's not going to be hard. You're not going to find yourself disagreeing with God. You're going to find yourself saying, well, that's hard. I fail at that sometimes. But you won't disagree with him because of the golden rule, do unto others. So let's see. Because what Jesus is now going to say for the next several verses, and I'm going to kind of go through it quick, is what does that look like to be salt and light? What does it look like to be salt and light? So I'm going to kind of hit the, the headings of these texts, which are not part of the text, just to give us a quicker summation. So the first thing that he addresses is anger. You know, we think it's, you shouldn't murder someone, but you can murder them all day long with your tongue because you're angry. And you call people this, that, and the other. So there's the do not do that. Well, what do we do? How do you, how do you, your salt is, don't be running around getting angry and being an inconsolable jerk and angry at people and always TO'd at everything. Instead, be nice. Be a peacemaker, not a troublemaker. James 1.19 says, be slow to speak and quick to listen. Two ears, one mouth, we've heard that. And you know what the next verse says? Because the anger of man does not bring about the righteousness of God. It's almost like the Holy Spirit wrote both verses through different people. That's not so hard. Every, everybody agree that we shouldn't be angry people, that we should listen more than we talk so that we can learn and not be angry? Yeah. Is everybody successful at it? Now, here's the nice thing about that before I go to the next one. They know that, too. And this is, this is where it comes in handy to be a believer. When you sin and blow it in front of people who don't know, you get to say sorry. Because that's part of being salt. Look, nobody likes perfect people because that makes them discouraged. But if they see you blow it and then they see you humble yourself, they go, oh, no, that's real. I can respect that. You are not going to be able to keep any of these perfectly. The joy is that you get to repent. And that is a joy. That is a gift. Imagine if you couldn't repent. Imagine if it was sin once. Boom, you're done. Lust. That's the next category. You shall not commit adultery. But if I tell you, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you've blown it. Committed adultery where? In your heart. It's different than real adultery, but it's still sin. So instead of committing adultery in your heart, what should you do? What's the light that you should shine? Well, just be a one-woman man. 
Try being a, a two-woman man with someone else's woman. It's going to make your life very difficult, very hazardous. It's much easier to be a woman man. Be content. Don't covet. I, I always tell my wife in the world of lust and women, because we live in a culture in, inundated with it, I say, you know, honey, it's all the same. You know, you can have the most beautiful woman in the world, because we see it all the time with celebrities, and somehow they end up divorced. And as a man, you go, all right, good luck finding someone prettier than that, right, kind of deal? Because that's not what it's about. You know, I, I always tell my wife, not that I'm calling her a four-bedroom house, but four-bedroom houses are cookie-cutter. You know, I go to parade homes, and I look at houses, and I always look at the million-dollar homes because they're fun to look at. But the four-bedroom houses, they're a dime a dozen. They're cookie-cutter. But if God gives me a four-bedroom house, I'm very happy to have it. Now, my mudroom is a little different than your mudroom. Maybe I have a really nice one. You don't even have one. But you've got an open floor plan, and I, my floor plan's all cut up. We have things about each other's house that we can appreciate. I can appreciate my house. You appreciate your house. I'm not going to lust and covet after your house. Every house has its pluses and minuses. Every man, every woman has its plus and minus. Just be content with the woman that God gave you. Be content with the husband that God gave you. That's salt, by the way. Divorce. We shouldn't get divorces. We should be what? Covenant keepers. When I do business with a covenant keeper, I know I can count on him. When a guy tells me he's going to show up and do the work, and I've worked with him enough, and I know he's going to, and he's reliable, oh, man, that's great. And that's what our culture needs. Our culture needs covenant keepers. Our culture needs people who aren't flipping off and getting angry at the slightest thing. Our covenant needs covenant keepers. It needs faithful husbands and wives. That's what our culture needs. It needs an example. It needs Saul. It needs light. How about oaths? Maybe we should just learn to be honest and be faithful to our word. Don't make foolish commitments that you can't keep, especially when you make them out of pride. Oh, I can do it. I can handle it. Even though you know you're not quite sure you can. Well, if you're not quite sure, you say, look, I'm going to give my best shot to, shot to do that. I think we can handle it. But there are contingencies involved, and I'll let you know if something's happening to where I can't. That's, that's better. People like that. Then they make an honest assessment and say, you know what, I'm going to get the guy who can absolutely guarantee me. But thank you, I'll catch you on the next job. You might have lost a job over that, but you didn't lose your reputation. You might get the small job the next time, which will help you to give a reputation so you get the bigger job. Retaliation. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, how about if you don't retaliate? How if you be, what about being gracious, kind, forgiving, minding your own business, and letting God deal with vengeance? How about we just let God deal with vengeance? It'll keep you out of jail when you want to go shoot somebody or, or get in a fight with someone or do something stupid. And last but not least, the easy one, love your enemies. I, I don't have to say anything more than that, right? Love your enemy. He's back there smiling like, dang, that's a tough one. Yeah, it is. It is. Well, what does it mean to love your enemies, by the way? A little, little left turn here. Does it mean that you should have gushy feelings of affection for your enemies? No. In fact, anybody who's not in the kingdom is your enemy. 
technically speaking, because we were all at enmity with God. We were all his enemy. But God loved us, didn't he? What it means to love your enemy is treat them in the way that is consistent with love. Sometimes that means telling them the truth when they don't want to hear it. Sometimes it means not fellowshipping with them because it's not healthy for them to feel like everything's okay. This is how we love our enemies. What it doesn't mean is we get the whole grudges, hate those people, and treat them like dirt. That's what we don't get to do. Now, sometimes, like I said, sometimes when we treat people with kind of excommunication, disfellowship, if you're not doing that because it's the best way to love them at the time, then you're not loving them. If you're doing it just because you have a tood, well, that's something you have to fix. It's something I understand. It might take a long time to get over those toods. But eventually, we want to get past toods and get, past to, and get to loving. These, these are just kind of the afterthoughts of what this is and what Christ says. He says, this is who the people of God are, and this is how they behave. I know that the Pharisees have given you a lot of other information that's not consistent with my scriptures, but my scriptures say you do this instead. Because he wants us to be salt and light. So the last thing I'll say about all this evangelism I mean, you guys just had a course in evangelism and it didn't last all morning and you didn't need to have a coffee break. And, and you didn't have to buy $100 worth of material. Isn't that great? I mean, that's not so good for me. I'd rather sell you hundreds of dollars of material. But hey, it's okay. See, because that's who I am. I give it away for free, just like it was given to me for free. Sometimes you can't do that. I get it. There's, you know, I'm not trying to zip on people who have conferences and sell material. There's necessity for all that. I'm just saying, you got the special today. It was great. So, <clears throat> evangelism. Where does evangelism start? And I really am winding it down, so I don't know how long I've been going. It feels like a while. Uh, but I'll say this. Evangelism starts in the home. You know, we should preach the gospel to ourselves every day. I have to be reminded of who I am in Christ what I'm called to do and be, if I have to repent. My, my advice to you is with your liturgy every week is take it to heart. Let it mean something. Don't let it become rote. Preach the gospel to yourself and then live it out loud to your spouse and your children. Do you know that your children are your first line of evangelism? You're living to win their hearts for Christ and to demonstrate what the gospel looks like. It's from that seedbed that you produce all the other stuff. Everything comes out of that. The kingdom of God is one big family. Well, how do you know what a big family is if you don't know what a little one is? Oh, nice. Sharpie. Excellent. God gave me a Sharpie on the pulpit. I didn't know I was going to need it. My bowl didn't come out on the computer. I had some highlights that didn't come out. You know, Ephesians 5, we all know the scripture about husbands and wives. Wives submit to your husbands. Husbands love your wife. Well, it's preceded by verse 21. Submit to one another out of reference for Christ. So part of saltiness in Evangelism 101 is we get to be humble and submit to the truth. That's really what that means. 
doesn't matter if my, my wife has the authority to tell me I must do this and I must do that. Did you know that? If she's speaking the truth of Christ into my heart, representing him, I better submit to that instead of thinking that just because I'm the man, I don't have to listen to my wife. Well, that's baloney. So we get to teach the world what it means to submit to truth, regardless of what mouth it comes out of. Then wives get to submit to their husbands. I could go on a lot about what that means. But this is where the gospel, saltiness and light, is really going to come in handy. Look, a wife, apart from her sinful nature, is looking for a man to submit to, to follow, to listen to. She longs for that. She, sees, she may see other women who have good husbands and go, man, I wish I had that. Okay? So here's the key, gentlemen. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, by the way, also when they're not lovable especially when they're not lovable. That's when, it's, that's when it's most necessary to love her. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And I've said this many times. I'm, this is not a marriage and family seminar. This is an evangelism seminar, okay? I'm telling you, if you want to evangelize your home, men and women, you, you, women, you submit to your husband, even when he's a jerk, but you do it as unto the Lord. And husbands, you love your wives even when she's not lovable. But there's a little added thing here for you husbands. You have to lay down your life for her. You have to give up on things that are important to you sometimes. You have to, et cetera, et cetera. However that looks like in your home, your wife will be more than happy to submit to you when she sees you're dying for her. Trust me. It might take a little wrangling. Maybe you have... Uh, a wife who's a little more difficult. I don't know. It may take years to get her to see it. It's all right. I don't, I don't see Jesus divorcing his church because we're so compliant. Are we compliant? Or is Jesus winning our hearts and sanctifying us? Because the Bible says a man should wash his wife in the water of the word. Isn't that exciting, women? Isn't that exciting, wives? Don't you just look for your husband to wash you in the word? Or are women a little suspect of that? Now, I know we have some good men in this church, so it might be a little hollow. But all I'm telling you is, gentlemen, if you're dying for your wife, it's not going to be hard. If you're not, then you giving her the word just looks like a stick that you're beating her with. Evangelism starts in the home. Evangelize yourself. I'm speaking as a husband, but women partake from a different role. Evangelize your husband. Evangelize your children. Because when you do, you will stick out. You will affect your community, and you will make a difference. And the other place you get to make a difference, which I have already exercised a lot today, is in your vocation. That's outside the home. And if you're a stay-at-home mom, and you don't have a, quote, outside the home vocation, which isn't really true, you have a go-to-the-store vocation, to buy groceries vocation. You have a take-the-kids-here vocation, take-the-kids-there vocation. You get to demonstrate Christ in the public square, too. 
So, Rome was changed because of Christ and the church. <clears throat> but since the Protestant Reformation, has the church made a difference in the world? I promise this is my last section. I know I've crammed a lot in today. Because of the Protestant Reformation, we have literacy, education, universities, science, as in the modern scientific methodology of theory, um, testing your theory, confirming your theory, mercy ministries, such as hospitals, economics, the way that scriptural economics has affected the culture. Now, if you don't believe me, and I don't blame you if you don't, I want you to not believe me. Well, I want you to believe me, but I want you to test it. There's a great book written by D. James Kennedy called What Would the World Be Like? Uh, what If Jesus Had Never Been Born? Fantastic book. Read it. Lots of good nuggets. You know that in the economics, the Protestant countries that came to the United States... They had a policy of free trade. The Dutch, the English, Germans, free trade. The Spanish colonies, which is all Roman Catholic, did not. The Spanish basically went to South and Central America and says, it's mine. <laughs> it's all mine. We want the gold. There was no free trade. It was ours. But the, 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 the colonies had a different attitude. Now, who prospered, by the way? Exactly. This is to demonstrate things in the book of Proverbs that say we should do that. Here's another example. Literacy rate in the Protestant colonies in the United States of America and in, 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 in Europe. You know what the literacy rate was? Plus 90%. You know what the literacy rate in the Roman Catholic South, South American colonies was? Roughly 30%. Don't quote me on that, but I'm almost positive that's the number I read. It's just been a while since I read the book. Because in the Protestant world, in the gospel, the recovered gospel, we believe in literacy. We believe people should read the word of God. So we made a printing press. We made Bibles. We want them to read. But in the Roman Catholic Church, it said, nobody reads the Bible. It's too delicate. We have to interpret it for you and read it for you. You may not print the Bible. And if you do, we will kill you. You see, the gospel makes a difference in culture, and it's why Western, Christian, Western civilization has prospered. The more the gospel, the more light and salt, the better it is for everybody, and the house gets prettier and prettier. The less gospel, the less light, the less salt, the worse it gets. Is our culture going in the right direction right now? It's a shame. But God has a plan. God knows why it's getting this way. There's a reason for everything under the sun. Every matter, it says in Ecclesiastes 3. So in the same way, <clears throat> we need to live out loud to our neighbors, to our family, and maybe even to the ends of the world. Like this little church full of families is living out loud to yourselves, Lord willing, to Mount Sterling, and to the Chin State. Chin State has been blessed, not just by us. So in the same way, Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your, your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's all about giving God glory. It's not about us. 
It's not even about getting people saved. People get saved so that God can get more glory. <laughs> I, I, I tell people about my, my Heavenly Father because I want people to enjoy the family. I want them to enjoy the fun. Because he's the point. All I can say is be salt and light. Just be. Just be. Because being is what produces doing. It preserves. It makes you here more important than you believe. No matter how dark it gets. You know, uh, one of the, the greatest heroes from World War II is a hero just because she said, yeah, you can stay in my house. Corey Tenboom. She let Jews, her family, let Jewish people who were being persecuted by the Nazis stay in her house. All they did was love their neighbor and have hospitality at, their, at the risk of their own safety. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, World War II. All he did was say, I'm going to just be me and be a Christian. And the Nazis hated him. And they hung him in April 1945. They knew they were losing the war. They didn't have to hang him. But they hung him. But so what? He went to heaven. He had a mansion waiting. What was, what was the reward was that he got, to, he got to proclaim the gospel and be a representative for Christ. Let's embrace who we are in Christ. Let's not worry about complex evangelism. That all comes. That all comes. As you, as you get sanctified, you learn, you get excited by all the things you learn. Look, most of the people in this room aren't going to get complicated. I, I love quantum physics, but I guarantee you 99% of you aren't going to learn it. You're never going to get engaged with a physicist over the conversation. You're probably going to talk about recipes and stuff, some of you. Some of you other guys are going to talk about IT. You're all engaged. Some guys are going to talk to, uh, you know, concrete dudes who don't know nothing about nothing, but they see that Tony's cool. Oh, yeah, and, yeah, look at that. Tony goes to church? Who, who would have thunk that? That's great. Just be. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for uh, making us who you have made us to be. It was a gift from heaven above, Lord. We thank you for it. We don't even always have to know how that happened and why, necessarily. We just know that it did. And we're thankful for it. We're excited to let our light shine. So as we go forth today, let's just, as the song says, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. I pray your time with us was very encouraging. If it was, consider sending us a note and also consider partnering with us. 